Uh, well, the past few weeks, we've been uh, going through a sermon series called uh, Love Your Neighbor. Uh, loving your neighbor, Jesus said, is the second greatest commandment, only second to loving the Lord your God. In the past four weeks, uh, we've looked at a, a couple specific things. Uh, man, you made that hard, Jake. I've just <laughs> gone around. Um, the past four weeks, uh, we started with asking the question, who is our neighbor? Who is our neighbor? Then we looked at how loving God actually allows us and leads us to love our neighbor. Thirdly, we looked at being, what does it look like to be present and engage with our neighbors? And just last week, uh, we talked about what does it look like to show hospitality to our neighbors? So with that in mind, today we're going to talk about evangelism. What is evangelism? Uh, J. Mack Stiles, uh, who is an author and a pastor who spent a lot of time uh, in the Middle East, he defines evangelism this way, teaching the gospel with the aim to persuade, teaching the gospel with the aim to persuade. Now, word ministry and deed ministry, they, they go hand in hand, and if one outpaces the other, they all fall apart. So there's an importance of actions and words together. And so as we talk about evangelism and speaking uh, and teaching the gospel truth to our neighbors, please let's hear this in the scope of the whole series together, knowing that our actions and our words are loving together. Thinking about evangelism and sharing our faith today, uh, we live in a unique time. I'm not saying it's the hardest time to share our faith, I'm just saying it's unique. Uh, we can't uh, talk about what's harder or worse. It's like debating LeBron or Michael Jordan. It's pointless, but people get paid lots of money to do it, so that's right. Amen. So we are in a unique time in history in that we live in a post-Christian culture, a post-Christian culture. That means that our culture actually tried to do the whole Christian thing. We tried to make our laws, we tried to live in this specific way, and people in our culture have grown up with these Christian worldviews. And what makes that unique is that we're actually pushing against it now. So when we share our faith, when we share uh, that we are Christians, or if we want to talk about the message of Jesus, what people hear is, well, our country has been doing this, and we enslaved an entire people group. Or we think, our country have been doing this, but we've been oppressing women. There's a lot of baggage that comes along with being in a post-Christian culture. So there's a lot of ways that we could talk about speaking love and evangelism today, but there's one specific passage that I want to look at, uh, look at with you. It's a passage where Jesus evangelized to a woman at the well. So like I said, there's a lot of different places we could go, but this is a unique passage that I think speaks to the context of us in 2018 in Columbus, Ohio. So if you would, please open your Bibles to John 4, if you brought a Bible or a smart device, uh, or if you just like listening, that is also appropriate. So if you open up your Bibles to chapter 4, we're going to read uh, verses 1 through 30, and then 39 through 42. And when we're reading this, uh, the lens that we're going to look through it is how Jesus interacts with this woman at the well. We're going to see that Jesus, he crosses barriers, Jesus, he engages brokenness, and then Jesus proclaims that he is ultimately who she is searching for. So this is John chapter 4. Now when Jesus learned 
that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, as one would be, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying it to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will never not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband. For you've had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You will worship what you do not know. Excuse me, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people and worship him, to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with the woman, but no one said, what do you seek, or why are you talking to her? The woman left her water jar and went away into the town, and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. And then verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. This is the word of God for the people of God. So we see this great interaction between Jesus and this woman at the well that kind of starts out kind of uh, innocently. Jesus just says, give me some water. Uh, but if we pull back a little bit, just a couple of verses for, uh, earlier, Jesus, excuse me, John says, Jesus had to go this way said that Jesus had to go this way. And I love that language because he didn't have to. He didn't had to do anything. In fact, the Jews would circle around Samaria 
all the time just to avoid being with those people. So it was this mission that Jesus was on. He had to go through Samaria. And we see that Jesus crosses barriers. He crosses barriers when he engages with this woman. Firstly, there's this moral barrier that separates Jesus and the woman at the well. She is out there at the sixth hour, which is around noon, which is the hottest time of day. And I know you guys think that Columbus gets hot right now. But I spent some time in Virginia and Alabama, and this is not hot. So imagine being there at the middle of the day, lugging around water. So this was not just because she slept in and she was like, ah, I forgot to get the water again. Like, I'm running late. It's noon, but oh well, I slept in because my iPhone didn't go off. This, she was out there by herself because she was marginalized by the community. Because communities together would go to the well and draw their water, get everything that they needed. They would go uh, together to congregate, to serve one another, but also because it's what made the most sense at the certain time of day. So seeing there by herself, you could see that she was marginalized from the community and not welcome. And at this time, rabbis, they did not associate with immoral people. Jesus was a rabbi, he was a teacher, and being with these people brought your, uh, your reputation further down. It meant that you could kind of catch their immorality. So firstly, there's the moral barrier. Secondly, there's a gender barrier. That men and women, they didn't congregate like this. They didn't have private conversations, even in the middle of day, in the middle of the town. In fact, when you saw a man and woman together, you could appropriately speculate that there was something between them. And even in this culture, brothers and sisters would walk further apart so that nobody would make assumptions about them. So being a man, talking to a woman, was kind of a risky thing to do. There's even some people that even talking to a woman at a well was essentially like a marriage proposal, which is a little different today, not much different. <laughs> uh, and then thirdly, there's the ethnic barrier. Jews and Samaritans, they just hated each other. And there's not a lot of people that we have this kind of historic ethnic hate for today. Uh, but it was the type of hate that they would avoid one another. And just uh, four weeks ago, Jacob went extensively in talking about why the Jews and the Samaritans hated each other so much. But there are some real ethnic uh, boundaries, some barriers in between them. And so what we see quickly is, oh, Jesus was just walking and just asked this woman, I noticed that you have a nice pitcher. Can you give me some water? Let's move on. But in Jesus initiating a conversation with, his, with this woman at the well, he crosses so many barriers. He crosses the moral barrier. He crosses, crosses a gender barrier. He crosses an ethnic barrier to have this conversation with this woman. It makes me wonder, what are the barriers in my life? What are the barriers that I am unwilling to cross to have conversations? I had some friends uh, last summer who did the Spartan race, which is like an obstacle course. Are you guys doing it again? No, they are not. Maybe. And it's this race where there's some running, but there's a lot of obstacles that you have to go through. And think about how foolish it would be if someone was just like, oh, we were running and there was a wall and I kept trying to run through it and it just, I couldn't get through it. Or if the mud pits 
I just kept running, and it was so frustrating because I wasn't making any progress. No, they had to stop. They had to look at the barriers in front of them to be able to move forward appropriately. So thinking about what are the barriers in our lives, I think about some personal barriers for myself when engaging people with this conversation about my faith and speaking in love. Firstly, I think of fear, fear of what they're going to think of me, fear of, uh, of if I'm going to come across foolish or say the wrong thing, fear that I would lose some friends, honestly. But then there's also a lot of insecurity in me of wanting to know all the answers. We're a culture that values being the answer person, being able to say, I have the answer for that. I can say yes or no confidently. It's hard to say I don't know the answer to that. But then I think about some things, uh, some social barriers, some things in our culture that are barriers to us engaging people. Firstly, we think that making a truth claim is a social barrier. That being able to say this is correct and this is right is kind of inappropriate to do for us today. That's hard. That's a barrier that we need to, to progress through and be courageous through. Even thinking about a social barrier, maybe in your workplace, having a serious conversation is kind of not appropriate. Maybe a workplace is, oh, we just gossip about each other, or we just talk about breakfast. What did you eat for breakfast? Or you just talk work together. Like, you're not really talking about serious things. So maybe there's this social barrier in your work. But we have to remember that Jesus, he crosses these barriers to have this conversation with this woman. And secondly, he crosses the barriers, but not just to accuse her, not just to say, you stink. He crosses the barrier to engage in her brokenness. He crosses the barrier to engage in their brokenness. This is such a great conversation that's happening between uh, this woman and Jesus. He's talking about water, and he's talking about living water, and the woman's like, I'm just talking about literal water. I don't know where you're going with this conversation. But when he's talking about water, Jesus says, I can give you drink that you'll never thirst again. And the woman says, that would be awesome because it is so hot and I'm tired of coming out here every day to get water at this time of day. But then Jesus says, all right, I'll give you the water. Just go get your husband. And what Jesus is doing is he, he sees the brokenness in her heart. He sees the, what she's looking for, that she is searching for love, for affirmation, for acceptance. So when he's talking about living water, he's not talking about literal water. He's talking about the brokenness in our lives, that we're all searching for living water, and we're going to different places to find that water. So he steers the conversation from this physical water to what we're all truly searching for. He doesn't just come in and accuse her, and she's like, oh, I don't have a husband. And he's like, I know you don't. Boom. See you later. He speaks into her life. He says, I know, I know what your life has been like. I know what you've been searching for. And in this way that he engages her and connecting it to, I have living water that will satisfy you, he's implicitly affirming her desires. He's affirming her core longings. So when we think about engaging people in their brokenness, are we engaging with them? Are we going side by side in solidarity with them? lifting them up, loving them? Are we there to correct them, tell them they shouldn't be doing that? I think about my daughter, Posey, and she really likes taking the sheets off her bed um, all day. And she really likes to bring the sheets downstairs. 
and we say, Posey, like, this is kind of dangerous, you know, because you're a toddler and you have terrible hand-foot coordination, eye-foot coordination, anything. She just can't walk. She's the worst. And just the other day, she like tripped on the blanket when she was going down the stairs. So of course, she tumbles down and she's laying on the ground crying. And I ran up to her and I said, I told you not to do that. No, I didn't. I loved her. I picked her up. What happened? Tell me, where does it hurt? And I love her. And I don't need to say, I told you so. I don't need to say, I warned you against that. I'm just with her affirming that she is hurt and that I am loving her and comforting her. Often we can feel like empathizing with somebody is an endorsement. Empathizing with them is like saying, I agree with what you're doing, but it's not. Empathy is not an endorsement. Empathy is the ability to love someone and care for them in their pain. When I think about Christians and the way that we engage these conversations with people's brokenness, I think about a destination or a journey. Are, are we saying that the Christian faith is about arriving somewhere and being that person, or is it about a process of moving in Christ-likeness? With having this idea of it being a destination, there's something called a bounded set, a bounded set. And I think there's a picture that I drew with my hands. <laughs> People think because I studied music that I can do visual art, which is clearly true, so... <laughs> Just an artist through and through. A bounded set says you have to be inside of the set to be a part of our community. So when we think about being inside that rectangle, if you can see it, it's there. Being inside. So when you come to faith, they say, now you need to dress this way. Now you need to talk this way. Now you need to vote this way. Now you need to go to these restaurants and you need to use this type of journal. Moleskin, that's the type that Christians use. <laughs> they say to be a part of this community, to be a part of the community of faith, you need to be inside. No outsiders allowed. And that's hard. And that's painful. And a lot of us accidentally, a lot of churches, a lot of Christians, they do that. They bring people in and they say, okay, now you can't do any of that. You need to be like us. You need to look like us, talk like us, act like us. Cheer for the same sports we do. Cheer for Stephen Curry and Tim Tebow because we're Christians. But actually, what we need to invite people in is called a centered set. A centered set, and it's changed the picture. And a centered set, as opposed to being insiders and outsiders, it's focused on direction and motion. That you can be as close to Jesus as possible or far away and we can engage in this conversation. We can engage in a quality friendship, knowing that even though you are far away, your worship and your affections are pointed towards Christ and moving in that direction. So when we're having these conversations with people, they're bringing their hurts to us. And I don't watch drama anymore. I can't do it because... My wife and I are watching, and she'd be like, what would you have done if you were in that situation? And I said, well, eight episodes ago, I wouldn't have done those things. I, it's just so hard for me to engage in those shows. But when we're engaging with people, and we're hearing the story of their lives. It's important for us to empathize with them, to affirm their core longings. Every human has these six core longings, love, security, belonging, 
understanding, purpose, and significance. All of us are looking for these. Love, I want to feel loved. I want to know that I'm loved. Security, I want to know that I'm safe, that I can't lose my identity. Belonging, I want to feel a part of a people. I want to feel rooted somewhere. Understanding, I want people to know my thoughts and be able to look at them and we can speak the same language. Purpose, that I'm moving forward in a direction and significance. People will miss me if I'm gone. I'm important. We all have these six core longings. So when the woman at the well is talking about her husbands, five different husbands she's had, Jesus affirms the core longings in her. He affirms that she is thirsting. He doesn't say, five? That's inappropriate. Don't have done that. He says, the well, the water that I give you is a living well in your heart. He says, I will give you water that will never thirst. So when we're empathizing with people, we acknowledge that we're right there with them. I too am looking for love. I too sometimes feel like I don't belong. We affirm their core longings and their desire. But it's not just affirming. It's not just saying, okay, we all want things. All right, I did it. I spoke love to this person. In the story, Jesus breaks through and he claims that he is the Christ. They're having this conversation, talking about worship, water, husbands. It's all over the place. But it gets to this point with this woman where she says, I'm waiting for a Messiah. I'm expecting a Messiah. And Jesus says, I am him. When we get to the point of our core longings, acknowledging who we need, what we're looking for, we can say Jesus provides that satisfaction. Jesus is the Messiah. So thinking about today, what that looks like, people don't really often think, oh, I'm waiting for a Messiah. I'm waiting for someone to come save me. Often we think we're looking for something, looking for a spouse, looking for that dream job, looking for more money, looking for not even more money, just having a, a nice living that is appropriate, that we can send our kids to college and have a car that doesn't break down all the time. What we're saying is when we look at that, we can say Jesus can offer that security. Jesus can offer that love. What I love about this is, is that the woman doesn't ask for all the answers right away. She doesn't say, okay, well, what's your stance on, like, tattoos in the church? And, you know, what's your, you know, dot, 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 wanting to know every single answer. She has this encounter with Jesus where she sees and she believes that he is the Messiah, that he is the Christ. And I love that, how she shares it with her friends who aren't really her friends because they hate her because she is the apparently the town worst person ever, so they just excommunicate her. She goes to them and she says, come and see. She doesn't say, I'm going to argue with you until you understand. She says, come and see for yourself. He's still here. So we look at the barriers that Jesus, he crosses every barrier, and that Jesus engages in our brokenness, and lastly, that Jesus proclaims that he is the Christ and the Messiah. I did want to mention a couple of things about evangelism and speaking love uh, to one another. There's some tensions that we could feel. 
Firstly, attention is the gospel message that Christ is supreme is for each other and is for others. It's for each other and for others. At a time in my life, I thought the gospel was kind of like the thing that got me saved, and then the gospel was the thing that got other people saved, but now I'm like more mature. So more Bible study and theology and reading books. But the truth is that the gospel is everything. The gospel grows us deeper in love with Christ, continues to invite us in, helps us understand God, continues to forgive us and love us. The gospel, when it's something that's for each other, it's something that we're preaching to each other. So we go back to that definition of evangelism, it's teaching the gospel. If we're teaching the gospel to each other continually, then it means that we don't ever have to change gears. There's also that time in college uh, where, you know, whoever was there and what we were doing is kind of like how we defined what we were doing. So like, there's a bunch of us together, and we were like playing games and drinking root beer. It was called fellowship. But if we had like our Bibles open, it was called discipleship. And then if someone who came who wasn't a Christian, it would change to evangelism. And so whatever we did depended, uh, we had a different term for it. But really, discipleship, fellowship, evangelism, it's all based on the gospel. So, Something I've also been thinking about is as a father, I have evangelism in my home. I'm teaching the gospel to my children. Often we can get frustrated at our kids because we're like, oh, you're my son. Like, just do things the way that I do them because you're a Juday and this is what Judays do. But really, we need to teach them the gospel. We need to teach them with the aim to persuade them. So the gospel is for each other and for others Secondly, with evangelism and speaking love, there's patience and urgency. There's patience and urgency. This is hard because when we're having conversations, they need to be genuine. We can't just be trying to manipulate conversations to get what we want. We can't just be watching soccer and they make a substitute and you say, hey, by the way, Jesus was a substitute for your sin. <laughs> That's weird and awkward and not beneficial. It might be beneficial. I don't know. I've never tried it. <laughs> but we need to be patient, knowing that God is sovereign, and he's going to bring about the right conversations. It says in Colossians 4, 5, Paul says, make the most of every opportunity. He doesn't say make opportunities. He says make the most of every opportunity. So we're patient for those conversations, but there's also an urgency because we love our friends. We love our neighbors, and we want them to taste this water that has given us life. So there's an intentionality to our conversations, intentionality, a realness, trying to engage at the heart level. And then the last tension I want to talk about is discipline and dependence. Discipline and dependence. Speaking love to our neighbors, sharing our faith, you guys know those people that it's like natural for them and you're like, hey, how are you doing? They're like, man, I just had this crazy gospel experience this morning and they just share the gospel super casually. They're like, that's amazing. And then the next person comes to you, they're like, how are you doing? You're like, good and you? It's a discipline. It's a discipline to talk honestly about our faith. It's a discipline to have serious conversations with our neighbors. We need to be intentional 
We need to be courageous. But lastly, it's a dependence. There's nothing that we can say or do that is ultimately going to save people. There is nothing, there is no amount of right words or right booklet or right program or anything that I can do that's going to convince somebody. It says this in Everyday Church, uh, Tim Chester, uh, me, Chester and Timis said this. It says, the Holy Spirit is the ultimate evangelist. He and he alone persuades people of the truth. He convicts of sin, righteousness, and judgment. He opens blind eyes. He melts hard hearts. We are free to engage in this story. We are free to engage in these conversations with our neighbors, knowing that it's not their salvation does not rest on our shoulders, that we are free to live inside the sovereignty of God and the way that he loves his people. And I want to close with this, that salvation is not ours to give. It is not ours to give, but we get to share our testimony. We get to invite people to taste the water. In Christ, he destroyed the barrier between us and God. On his death and resurrection, he destroyed what separated God and humanity. In Christ, he put on human flesh to empathize with us. He knows our brokenness. And in Christ's death and resurrection, he broke the chains of sin and death, giving us life eternally. And I love this. In verse 42, when the Samaritans come to Jesus, they say, it is no longer, excuse me, they're talking to the woman at the well. It says, it is no longer because of what you have said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. She said, come and see. Come and experience. We all must have this encounter with Jesus. Randy Newman, he wrote that book, Questioning Evangelism, that's in your bulletin. He said this, Rather than trying to learn all the right words, have all the right booklets, anticipate all of the right questions, and memorize all of the right intros and scripture, we should approach evangelism with wisdom. This means that we become people who incarnate the gospel and speak of it freely because our hearts and minds have been captivated by it. Becoming people of wisdom and compassion is the prerequisite for an evangelistic technique. Friends, we're all invited into this personal and intimate encounter with Jesus to have our hearts and our minds captivated by him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that through Jesus you have crossed every barrier. We thank you that through Jesus you empathize with our brokenness. Heavenly Father, we thank you that through Jesus you have broken through into our lives and you've broken the chains of sin and death. Lord, I pray that we will be committed to sharing this with others. We would be committed to inviting others to come and see, to taste the water. Lord, we pray that we would be preaching the gospel to ourselves, to each other, and to others. We pray that we would have a sense of patience waiting on your sovereignty and an urgency to share. 
We pray that we would be disciplined and courageous to share our faith, but also completely dependent in prayer on your power in this world. More than anything else, Lord, I pray that we would be captivated in our hearts and our minds by this gospel story. We pray all this in the name of your Son and the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.